Welcome to The District, a podcast about politics and culture from the spectator world. I'm your host, Amber Athey, The Spectator's Washington editor, and I'm joined by Matt Peterson. He's the co-founder of New Founding and founder of The American Mind, a publication by the Claremont Institute. Matt, thank you so much for joining The District today. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I want to break down the state of the 2024 Republican Party primary Vivek Ramaswamy, for example, just announced that he was going to be joining. Nikki Haley has announced Donald Trump. And then there's a few other names floating around, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, maybe. But I think all of this talk about who the person is going to be is separate from what the goals and objectives of the GOP should be and what the platform should be centered on. And you write recently in the in the Daily Caller what if neither Donald Trump nor Ron DeSantis can save you? So I'd love for you to kind of dig into what you mean by that and what some of the more existential items facing Americans heading into the 2024 race are. Yeah, so and there's different ways to do this. There's all kinds of crises that people talk about every election cycle. But if I was to pin it down to what this election is about, it's about whether or not the permanent state the permanent administrative state, the deep state, whatever you want to call it, is really tameable by anyone at all. And this shouldn't be controversial for the right, because I always thought conservatives as a whole, for the birth of the movement, the whole last 60 years, saw a rise of progressive ideology through the growth of the federal government, not because a large large is necessarily bad, but because the thing it was, right, the structure of the beast was unaccountable, was power that was being cordoned off from public control or accountability. And at some point along the way in the last hundred years, there is no doubt, I think you have to be a complete moron to argue otherwise, Congress became a creature of the administrative state. They don't pass budgets. They just continually, you know, raid the treasury And they are creatures, they're pawns of the agencies of the unelected bureaucrats who cannot be fired, who have incredible power. Digital technology has given, you know, the agencies incredible power, the intelligence agencies especially, right? And so here's the question. Can any president really stop that? Congress certainly can't. Congress is a creature of this beast that isn't elected in what you call your Republican form of government, your democracy. So the Constitution's always been morphed beyond recognition. Now, uh, some people say, some credible people say, Nixon in his second term, elected by the greatest margin in American history. That's how popular he was. What happens to him when he decides to go after and reshuffle and reform now that he knows something about how things work in Washington, uh, the administrative state? Well, he ends up leaving in disgrace. Ronald Reagan promises he's going to get rid of, for instance, the Department of Education, you know, The Department of Education grows by leaps and bounds. It's never even threatened. It's never even touched. It just grows in power over time. Certainly, Ronald Reagan wasn't for that, right? Even every boomer con alive knows that he tried. Uh, Why didn't that work? If he couldn't do it, who can? And then we have Donald Trump, whose crime, you know, apparently was just winning. I mean, what did he do, right? He, He walked into office. He wasn't supposed to win. And he terrified that permanent state. The most, the thing that scares them the most is unpredictability because you didn't know who he was going to choose for the office. You didn't know what he was going to say. And this terrified them to their core. And so they attacked him and destroyed his presidency in ways that are just unprecedented in all of American history. So here's the question going into this. 
who are you going to vote for who can actually take on the real power that runs America? Can Ron DeSantis do what it takes to confront that power? Can Donald Trump, uh, you know, maybe a wiser Donald Trump do that? And, and what if it's the case that neither can and it's sort of foolish to think that either can? Well, and what if that is the case? How do Americans go about getting rid of this entrenched administrative bureaucracy that is basically operating on autopilot at this point? Because obviously it's not acceptable, at least not to me, to say, too bad, this is what it is, right? I mean, what do we do? <laughs> yeah, no, good. So so I do think that uh, it's not a pure doomer point that I'm making um, yeah, it's a li- it sounds a little black-pilled on its face. <laughs> on its face, it sounds black-pilled, but it's not because the greatest thing that someone like you know a DeSantis could do, let's say, um, if he's your guy, the greatest thing he could do is to look into the camera as World War III happens, assuming he goes and actually fights the beast, and say, look how bad it is. This is happening because I tried to do X. Look what they're doing, right? And yes, it happened under Trump, but... You'd hope that if Trump or to, so that's why I'm not even talking about him. It already happened with him. He would have to point it out again. The greatest thing that Trump did was reveal how bad things are. But I think for a lot of people, I'm just, they think DeSantis, well, he's different, right? So it won't happen to him, but it would happen to him. And the greatest thing that he could do is to say, look at how bad it is. This is all happening. World War Three is happening because it will be way worse than Trump the first time, what they'll do. Look at what's happening. Look at how bad it is. That will hopefully wake up the maximum amount of Americans possible to really how the country works. Someone needs to say this out loud at the level of a national politician in stark language like I just did over and over again and show how it's true to the American people, whether they win or not, as they leave. So it's almost be like if they Nixon him right on the way out, he'd be saying this happened because they did this to me because I tried X, Y and Z and we all know it. Right. So that awareness, I don't discount that. I think that's really important to get everyone on the same page because people are confused. Like, well, Matt, that sounds pretty radical. Is it really that bad? I don't know. You know, an election can solve this. So that's that's important. Number one. Number two is, I think, um, something that's beyond politics, which is. But, but well, let me stick with politics for a minute. Number two is red state leadership, where the states start saying no to the feds on things that are just blatantly unconstitutional. So. I would want the, the, the candidates to have a plan for how they'll win. We can talk about that uh, against the deep state. But assuming they can't and, and they can't, if they try, they reveal how bad it is. And then you revert to red state leadership to say, wow, we really need right to stand up for ourselves politically. And then third, culturally, you'd say, I live I need to reframe how I think of America and how I live here. I need to really band together with people right, like mine build the alternative institutions or reform institutions around me because I cannot count on the Republican form of government in Washington, D.C. How do you get the people who are sort of teetering on the edge to overcome that fear of what happens if we hit the autopilot off switch? So I think what we have right now is a lot of people who recognize things are bad, but they've become comfortable with that level of uncomfortableness And they're scared that if someone comes in and tries to blow up the system, so to speak, that things will get unfathomably worse before they get better. So how do you convince people to take that leap of faith? Well, I mean, I really think that that is the job of the person leading the charge, right? I mean, I can give my answer and I will in a minute, but really that's what 
if you want to run for president, you should be doing right now. You know, first you should be, should be saying you should be acknowledging the depth of the problem. And then you should say, this is my plan. It has to be big enough. It can't be like a couple policy record, you know, has to be this is for the president. It's very clear. There's two. It's a pincer movement. There's two big things that need to happen. One is I am going to regard large swaths of the administrative state as unconstitutional delegations of power given by Congress. I don't regard it as a legitimate form of government. I'm not going to fund it. I'm not going to sign anything related to it. I'm going to pretend like these parts when my lawyers have looked through. Here's the argument. Take me take it up in the courts and dare Congress to pass legislation or go after you, which they will because they're little, you know, trying to use a nice word, little creatures of the administrative state. They'll be like, oh, my gosh, this is better. And then they'll fight. Dare them to do that. And then the other side say, I'm going to fire a bunch of people and I have my reasons. Go to the courts. And by the way, I also want you to pass legislation to make it I can fire everybody. We're going to go back to the spoil system. Your civil service system sucks. I'm getting rid of everyone. And you raise awareness and you do that, that pincer movement. So then you'd have to convince, you'd have to, if you had a plan, right, then you, it would, that would be half the battle to convincing people you might be able to win, even when you just stirred things up. What makes people nervous is like, what's your plan and how you really win? They don't believe you can win. So you have to convince them you can win. And, you know, you have to, you have to, con- that, that's, you start there and then you can work with their objections. And I think it's a legitimate, it's a legitimate fear by a lot of knowledgeable people who do know how bad things are. Because it's often true that if you muddy things up, like look what happened with Trump, right? You could you could say you 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 made the beast very angry, right? <laughs> That's mm-hmm. sure. they're still steaming mad as long as he's alive, right, and not in prison. They're going to be after him, and so. But but I think the I think the I, I don't I don't have a problem with that objection. My own my own case would be more more cultural and commercial. Is my own case would be where do you think this is going to go anyway? You know, I mean. This is the this is kind of a boomer foul. Like if I just hold on a little longer, it won't be bad enough. And then I guess I'll be gone and it won't matter. Like, do you have kids? I mean, I think I say this all the time to people in complacent red states, you know, here in Texas. Like, you have kids, you think it's gonna stay this way? Are you nuts? Like this moves in one direction. And so so they're not gonna leave you alone. You're not gonna just get away with it. Uh, they're gonna keep coming and coming and coming and pushing and pushing and pushing until you put a line in the sand. Uh, so that's the general, that's my general take is, you know, it won't stay this way anyway. So, so and the longer you wait to do something about it, the longer you, you, you be complacent and you say, oh, I can just deal with this. I can deal with this. Uh, the worse it will be and the harder it will be to overcome. Yeah. I think that's a pretty compelling case, especially for people who have kids or plan on having kids because it's already kind of terrifying now to, to think about starting a family, which is, you know, something I'm planning on doing soon. So that one speaks to me, especially, but I wanted to get your take really quickly on, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy before we divert to a a somewhat related, but different topic, because he has hit on a few of these ideas. I think he said he wants to get rid of the department of education. He's talked about limiting civil servants to seven or eight years of job security And I think he suffers from a lot of issues in terms of his ability to win. But if he can provide those as a somewhat of a litmus test for other candidates, then maybe he has an important role to play in this race. Yeah, I think you make a very fair point because, look, someone has to I I think the entire right right now, like everyone should be asking, particularly Trump and DeSantis, although DeSantis hasn't announced so. So Trump, I mean, over and over again, 
he is laying out a lot of what he wants to do. Some of it's pretty darn good. Um, but the question, however, has to be, what is your plan? You know, I mean, this already happened last time. Like, what is your plan to deal with this situation? So to the extent that Vivek can, can you know, elicit reactions from people even, just get them talking, uh, that's really important. I think he has, his focus is in the right place in terms of the wokeness and woke capital. I think that's probably... It's also my focus in many ways. I mean, I think that is one of the most significant things that needs to be explained over and over again to the American people. Keep the eye on the prize. Keep the eye on the real problem here that's terrifying, that's happening everywhere. And in terms of his policy prescriptions, to me, it's like a it's like a better version of Yang, you know, coming in. And it doesn't seem like he's got anything gimmicky so far. I haven't seen everything. I mean, it's only been a what, few days, but right. uh, as of this recording, but but he, you know, he doesn't, it seems to me like it's it's pretty sensible stuff. It's it's mostly good stuff that I agree with. And look, if the more people are in there speaking intelligently, I think that's great. That's fine. And, and it, it, I think you're right. It could, it could very much help focus the mind of some of these politicians because they drift towards, um, you know, sort of out of date mantras and uh, slogans and policy prescriptions that really no one cares about and make no sense. Like, no, literally no one cares. Yeah. You know? Right. Like we're going to kick people harder because we're wearing heels, for example. <laughs> but you're uh, I mean, your point about wokeness, I think, segues perfectly into the the next thing I want to talk about, which is the state of younger generations in America. And you've written recently about the cynicism that exists in those generations and why wokeness has become attractive to them. And it's sort of a question of the absence of anything else value driven in their lives. Um, but also the fact that these people don't remember a time when America was great. They were probably born post nine 11 or young, young enough at the time to not really remember what the country was like before that. So if you could go a, a little bit more into depth into some of the problems facing that generation and maybe how you sort of shock them or shake them out of that woke towing the line of the woke. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that they are more radical right or left, um, because, um, as you can lay it out, I mean, because the America they grew up in is not great in many ways. And yes, it's financially dominant. It turned it turned into the century as the hegemon, but 9/11 was like the fly in the ointment to see that maybe maybe something was was off, and something was was wrong, and. What I encourage people to do, and I think as I get older, it becomes more apparent that it's not just like a me, young Gen X thing <laughs> or old millennial, however you want to look at it. It's not just a me thing. There really is something significant about whether or not you experienced the 1990s in some significant way. Um, not that it was the be all end all, but just that like there was a turn. And if you don't remember that period of time, the America you grew up in post 9-11 is a very different place and it's a place that's worsening culturally in many ways doesn't have the optimism you don't remember the win the win of the cold war which frankly like a lot of the anti-reagan stuff like i, I re, re you know revising the vi vision of reagan i agree with a lot of it like caldwell's book if you read that chris caldwell was a book great book about you know the 60s when he kind of revises the take on reagan but the one thing people do have to remember is we won the cold war like that was a big deal they were evil. You know, there were nuclear, <laughs> nuclear weapons were pointed at each other. 
And one side was saying we can never win and we have to surrender, right? So, so seeing us win, right? See, I mean, this is a completely different place. And so what you grow up in now is a kind of cultural dystopia and it can be very enervating. It sucks the vitality out of you and it's disorientating because of how insane the cultural eddies are. And if you don't remember, it didn't used to be this way in a very short period of time, you know, then you become very radicalized one way or another, like something has to change. Okay. Yeah. So, so the positive, like the future side of that is, and the positive side of it is, first off, the first step is already taken with these people. Like these are my people because these, these young people are looking around and they see reality as it is. They're closely more, they're more closely tied to the landscape of the real than the people who are stuck in what it was. Because they don't have the nostalgia. Yes, right. They don't have the blinders because I can, you know, if I drive by, you know, a part of Los Angeles, for instance, I can have like warm, fuzzy memories and and then even see what I, you know, what was before me. But I remember it because it was on TV as nostalgia for my, you know, and I can see that in an unbroken line. It's not tied to something that's purely dystopian. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I can associate happy things with it, right? This is why all the retakes on the founding are happening, by the way, right? As a forgetfulness that there was some good that happened in the last like couple centuries in America. Mm-hmm. And then you have people on the right and left going, no, no, the whole thing's always been evil from the beginning, right? In yeah, part- the original sin of racism. <laughs> yes, yes. So so in any event, I think the, the good news is if they see the landscape of the real, which they do, then if they're on the right, they're much more, for instance, socially conservative than a lot of Christians, whether they're religious or not, um, they're much more inclined towards the actual solutions. And what they need is the confidence and the vision of what we're fighting for, that we can forge a new America in this century that doesn't suck, that we can, in fact, band together, consolidate power, and create a way of life for our kids in the midst of all this madness if we, you know, we band together and we, do, we, we start taking bolder action. And I think that is something where things get exciting. And that, you know, it has to be pro-tech. You can't get rid of technology, but it has to be technology in the service of what's human in the family, right? Yeah. When you paint those visions for younger people, they see that as both possible, hard to attain, but addressing the real problem. And they get excited in a way that other people don't. And I see them as willing to fight. I like to say about new founding, I mean, if I had a way to employ anyone who wanted to, to implement this kind of vision, I would have like barracks full of young men, like ready to go, you know, because they're they're willing uh, to work towards it. They know that the future is not going to be good if they don't do something. So I, I think they're ready. It's just they need to be marshaled and they need to see a vision that makes sense they can fight for. Yeah, I think there's a way to grab people like that on the economy, too, because, yes, we all have a higher standard of living today than we did 30 years ago. But. We also are in a situation where it's almost impossible to buy a house and start a family on a on a single income, right? I mean, like my parents, my dad was a union worker, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and they were able to buy a nice house, put money in the 529 plan, save for retirement for me and my brother, and we had a tight but good economic life. I'm getting married soon, looking to buy a house with my fiance, and we're, we're making significantly more with two incomes than my parents ever were. And still, it's like, 
how do people do this? It just seems so difficult. And then you have companies like BlackRock coming in, of course, and buying up single family homes and renting them out for more than a mortgage would cost. So I, I definitely think there's the ability to build that that cross coalition as well on the economic issues that maybe grab some of those people who are more attractive to the socially liberal woke cultural items. Yeah, I think that's right, because what you want to exploit is the fact that this is basically an oligarchic elite, right, who supports these socially liberal policies. Right. And at the end of the day, you know, just like the flip side of it's the economy stupid is that works both ways, which is what you're describing, right? Take DeSantis. I've seen someone this morning. Interesting thing about DeSantis and the COVID stuff is that, you know, right or wrong, I know people who are, are you know, blue urban fancy area moms who, like people who voted for Bernie not that long ago, mm-hmm. who got radicalized by COVID and like love Ron DeSantis. They are not like socially conservative. <laughs> I don't even know if they know what else he does, you know, but they're like, Ron DeSantis is a hero. You know, I'm going to vote for him. He hasn't even announced yet. And these are people who live in lib areas, right? And and why why is that? It's because he's addressing something that, you know they do care about. So I think you're I think you're very right about that. And when it comes to the economic stuff, it really it really angers me because I saw this as well. Like I'm young enough to have experienced this as well, where you all of a sudden wake up one day and I don't know if it's the 2000s or around 2010, and you're kind of like wait a minute, why is this not working out for me the way it was supposed to, right? I'm not doing anything wrong. And like, I, I'm making more money, right, than they had. I'm, and, blah, blah, blah. and then all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, this was all BS. Like, I mean, the worst part of the right is, and God bless them, like these are some good people, but I'll give you a demo that does drive me nuts sometimes is um, I know some uh, many older people, if you're listening, it's not you that I'm talking about, <laughs> uh, but I know many older people in Orange County, ATM of the Republican Party in Southern California, right? And these are great people, conservative people. They they do the right thing, hearts in the right place. They give money, whatever. But their attitude about the economy was, well, you know, let me tell you how to invest. Like first, you buy a house in California in 1965. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yes. I get a time machine. I go back to 1965 in <laughs> California and I buy a house. Let me just check the box right there. That ain't happening. And, and so, of course, you know, it's and, 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 you know, you get these people like AEI, these think tanks that come out still on the right and try to say, no, no, it's not that bad. No, I mean, just completely, complete garbage, complete trash. It's just it, it doesn't make any sense. And so addressing those things for people in the way that you're talking about and saying, you want to have a family. You want to raise a you know raise a family. We want that to happen. This that's gone. That rhetoric is all still good, and it needs to come with it needs to come with real bones like policy that makes sense for people. It's tangible. But what is that? What, what you're describing is is making a, a vision of a way of life very clear to people that's mm-hmm. fact, and that matters more than anything. Show don't tell. Like this is what I want. You know this family living in this house and being able to afford that. Because we want them to be able to have kids, you know. There's an interesting trend, too, um, both on the right and the left among young people with the concept of cottage core, which I think was born out of this desire for people to be homemakers and be able to dabble in the arts while somebody else <laughs> earns the money, presumably the husband. <laughs> and uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's not just a, like a right wing trad thing. 
But one of the debates I was hearing at a conference I was at recently among young conservatives was the appeal of just jetting off and living that lifestyle, you know, buying a farm somewhere and being completely disconnected from the rest of the world versus staying in a city and fighting for, you know, this dream that you have and being willing to to go to battle rather than just saying somebody else is going to do it. What would be your, your advice to someone to encourage them to stick around and, and try to use politics to make change as opposed to just, you know, going to, to raise your sheep or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, first the extremes and then I'm in, I'm in the between, I'm in between those things. Um, so let me tell you what I mean. I mean, in order to go raise the sheep and whatever, um, the ultimate, you know, cottage core, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Really do that ballerina farms, right. If you know the controversy recently, you, you have to have money, you know, so maybe if you've got a great remote job, you can pull that off more power to you if you do. Even if you do that, you're you're really not leaving people. Um, you should, unless you're crazy, you should be going to a place where there's a community of like-minded people, right? For your yeah. kids, your family, whatever. So in a way, I wouldn't say that that is running away. It should be building a community for real uh, in, a, in a small country town. That, that could be amazing. But you're doing the work of like city council and all that. And the other extreme is, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to conquer something that can't be conquered um, and lose my soul in the process. Tale as old as time. You know, odds are you're not going to reform Washington, D.C., the beast. You know, uh, you're probably not going to do that. Um, There used to be a time where you could say, you know, I'll go send my kid to the Ivy League school and uh, they'll make it better or whatever. I, I don't I think that time is gone. So I think for the big cities like. No, it's laughable. You're not going to influence politics in New York City. You're going to influence politics in L.A. Those places are good. You may as well say you're going to change the politics in North Korea. Now, you can be a missionary in North Korea, right? You can be a secret cell of resistance in the Soviet Union. You know, you can still do a lot of good uh, and you can get your education and your money uh, from that in some way. That's fine. But what about the middle path, which is find battles that are possible to win? Right. Mm-hmm. In other words, don't retreat to, to zone out. There is no zoning out. There is no, you know, you can go to Montana and try to ride it out, but they're not going to leave you alone. But that's not why, for instance, I moved to Texas from California. I moved to Texas to fight. I already have two people on the city council. I'm going to have even more. We're going to have a majority on the city council soon. Could I do that in Pasadena? There's no way in hell. It's not even a thinkable thing. Can I do that here? Absolutely. Why? Because it's not perfect here. You know, it's terrible in many ways, we, but you can win the battles. So, you know, if you're going to the big city, it's the same way. Where are you going where you can win the battles? Do you understand what you can win and, and you can't win? Do you have a community of people you can band together with and build with? And you can do that in a small town. And you can do that in Washington, D.C. Thank you for taking my rather inartful question and providing a, a rather erudite answer. Thank you so much, Matt Peterson. He's the co-founder of New Founding and the founder of The American Mind, the Claremont Institution publication. We really appreciate you coming on the district today. Hey, love coming on, Amber. Great questions. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of The District. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe to our channel. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. To read more content on similar topics, visit thespectator.com.